Each year, millions of people visit national, state, and municipal institutions, big and small, often looking to expand their knowledge of heritage and the world around them. However, many people are disappointed to find walls and walls of text amongst a body of things. What do these things mean? Why are they important? Why should I care? What transforms these artworks, artifacts, documents, and places into something meaningful? The answer lies in interpretation. As is described by originative interpreter Freeman Tilden in his 1957 book, Interpreting Our Heritage, these visitors are engaged through various means by a particular type of communication known as interpretation. This communication gives that life and meaning that audiences were looking for. On today's episode, we will explore the history of this practice and the principles that guide it. This is the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour. My name is Gray Wilson. My name is Jacob Wolf. And today we are looking to provide a history of interpretation as well as the interpreters who have guided it. Absolutely. And before we really get into this topic, since today is our first episode of the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour, we'd like to outline to all of you what this podcast is and what it means to us and uh, what we hope to provide to everyone. The podcast intends to provide engaging, thoughtful, quality, meaningful, and inclusive content on the field of interpretation to adult museum and park professionals, volunteers, students, and goers, people who just like to visit museums and want to know about the field and the behind-the-scenes actions that go within it. Thank you, Jacob. With that being said, let's jump into our topic. Absolutely. We're going to start off by talking a bit about famous interpreters, people who shaped the field, people who shaped our career and our profession that we are currently in. The first individual I'd like to talk today about is John Muir. John Muir was born on April 21st, 1838 in Dunbar, Scotland. At the age of 11, he immigrated to the United States of America with his family. In that year, he moved to Portage, Wisconsin, where he worked on a farm with them. His father was a harsh disciplinarian. He worked his family from dawn to dusk. Whenever Muir had moments of recluse, moments to escape from the time farming, he would wander out to the rich fields and woods of Wisconsin's countryside, and explore the natural world. There he fell in love with nature, and found solace within it. However, for most of his life, his main career, the one we know a lot about, uh, his role as an interpreter and a man of the natural world, which I will illustrate later, did not really come about until his time traveling across the United States. 
He attended the University of Wisconsin in 1860 and studied there for three years. He got pretty good grades overall. However, he got a bit of wanderlust. He wanted to see the world. He wanted to see more. So he traveled and he left Wisconsin. In one case, he even walked all the way from Indianapolis to the Gulf of Mexico. From there, he sailed to Cuba and later to Panama. And from there, ended up on the West Coast. And this is where he would find his role, that profession as a naturalist, as a conservationist, and as an interpreter. He particularly remembers, after leaving San Francisco, his time in California's Sierra Nevada and Yosemite, the place that, according to Sierra Club, which is a non-for-profit dedicated to writings and information on John Muir, that this place truly claimed him. In 1868, he walked across the San Joaquin Valley in the Sierra Nevada through waist-high wildflowers and into the high country for the first time. He wrote, Then it seemed to me that Sierra should be called no the Nevada or snowy range, but the range of light, the most divinely beautiful of all the mountain chains I've ever seen. That poetic prose, that approach and point of view that he uses, would lead to shape the way people saw him and the interpretive field. He ended up sheep herding in Yosemite for a long while, finding the connection with nature that sheep herding brought by just wandering in ecstasy throughout the fields to be absolutely wonderful. However, he had attracted the attention of some very famous men from the time, one of those being Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous transcendentalist. These people would make way to his pine cabin and talk to him. Naturally, he didn't just gather these people's attention by wandering throughout the open fields and being a recluse. He was a writer. He published a lot of articles in several journals and magazines about his experiences. And that's what ultimately gained him all the attention that he got. He was soon to be asked to be the premier tour guide for Yosemite. And there, that poetic prose that I mentioned earlier, he would employ that. He would provoke his audiences with that. There's a famous quote from John Muir. John Muir says, I'll interpret the rocks. Learn the language of flood, storm, and the avalanche. I'll acquaint myself with the glaciers and wild gardens and get as near the heart of the world as I can. That word, interpret, was what the National Park Service claims to be the inspiration of the term interpreter and the field of interpretation. Muir provoked a lot of individuals. One particular individual Gray actually would like to talk a little bit about. Yes, of great interest is a 1903 camping trip 
that John Muir took with President Theodore Roosevelt in the Yosemite Valley. Over the course of this camping trip, John Muir effectively persuaded President Roosevelt to return the Yosemite Valley to federal protection as part of the Yosemite National Park. During his presidency, Roosevelt went on to establish then over 148 million acres of forest reserves, 50 regions for the protection of wildlife, and five national parks, which likely was inspired by the efforts of John Muir. Another individual that was impacted deeply by John Muir, not only the president, but also a future interpreter, someone who interpreted in a very different way. Born in 1870, his name was Enos Mills. Mills grew up on the Kansas frontier during a very polarizing time in American history. His mother was a fierce naturalist, his father also a person of nature. They would both shape his love of the natural world throughout his childhood. At the age of 14, he left Kansas and he went to Colorado, where he worked at a resort near Long's Peak. In 1885, he even climbed it. He would return there to climb the mountain 304 more times. But before his return, he traveled across the United States, much like Muir. He worked at a mine in Montana, married in California, working on a fruit farm. Whilst in California, that's where he met John Muir. John Muir impacted Enos Mills with his poetic prose, describing the sea life across the shores of San Francisco. From there, Muir decided to pursue a life as a naturalist. He would hike and travel in nature, but in a different way than Muir ever did. No, he was not interested in the poetic prose or the spiritual facets in nature, but he was more interested in the adventure. The sheer grandness of the natural world and how much bigger it is than the human. However, how the human can overcome this and how through their own mental fortuity be able to conquer nature in a way. He used to climb up the tops of trees during windstorms and hold on as it swung him back and forth as a pastime. He would travel throughout nature with no food other than raisins, by principle, no bedding, and very little things overall. On some occasions, he would even eat bark to sustain himself. As an adventurer, he would apply these stories of his wanderings throughout nature swinging on the tops of treetops, leading tours for different urban individuals, and saving them during very adverse conditions. In one case, a man slid down an ice patch, almost falling off the cliff of a mountain. Enos Mills rushed to save him. He grabbed his hand right at the last moment's notice, and the man came out alive. Even alone, he was skiing one day, out in the Long's Peak region, and an avalanche started falling down. He outran the avalanche. Now, it's often within discourse amongst people who study Enos Mills that they question the validity of his stories, which is fair. Outrunning an avalanche is extremely unlikely. However, by talking about the reality of his stories, 
it misses the point of his stories. Because when we look back to John Muir, his poetic prose, his spiritual belief in the natural world, was really provoking. In the same way, Enos Mills and his adventures were extremely provoking. In the end, this both got people to care about the natural world, whether it be Theodore Roosevelt or, as not mentioned, Enos Mills and his pioneering for advocating for Rocky Mountain National Park. These natural sites are protected and with us today because these individuals provoked their listeners. They got them to care. They said, hey, this matters whether it's through poetic prose or through adventure storytelling. Whether or not authentic, his stories and persona provoke people to care about nature. And in the end, his approach accomplished a lot. And this really was the root for the principles that Tilden established. But before we get into Tilden, it's clear to see that the impact of both Muir and Mills had a very prominent effect very quickly. Only a year after Mills was able to establish Rocky Mountain National Park, Woodrow Wilson created the National Park Service as a part of the Department of the Interior on August 25th of 1916, just one year after the creation of Rocky Mountain National Park. This new service was responsible for protecting the 35 national parks that existed at the time. As was desired by both Muir and Mills, the mission was to conserve scenery and wildlife for the enjoyment of future generations. Now, while Congress gave the Park Service this mission and these objectives, there were not necessarily any specifics on how to fulfill them. And a century ago, there were not necessarily any professional park interpreters that we would deem of the modern mold. The few interpreters that did exist, as we would call them today, were called naturalists, trail guides, or transcendentalists. Yet, the transformation of them into what we consider interpreters in today's context is largely thanks to Freeman Tilden, who provided progressive philosophical structure on interpretation and offered guidance on what interpreters do. Freeman Tilden began as a book reviewer for his father's newspaper and was initially a novelist and a playwright who focused mainly on fictional writing. Freeman Tilden traveled all across the world, and he eventually landed himself a job with the National Park Service. As an employee of the service, his responsibilities included traveling to national parks to observe and record presentations and habits of rangers while they delivered educational programs to the public. At that point, he compiled the notes and effectively laid the foundation for interactive and provocative interpretation as we know it today. In the early 1940s, tired of writing fiction, and with the encouragement of the National Park director, Newton B. Drury, Freeman Tilden began to write exclusively about national parks. In 1951, he published The National Parks, What They Mean to You and Me, which essentially changed the direction of his career. At that point, he began exclusively writing about parks and interpreting them for the public. In 1957, Tilden published Interpreting Our Heritage, seeing that at the time, many different styles and individuals existed in terms of interpretation, 
but much of Muir and Mill's concepts had been dimmed. However, with this monumental book, Muir and Mills were reincarnated as heroes of their profession, and their accomplishments were brought back into the light of the public. Now, this book was not necessarily a how-to guide for building public programs, but rather a set of principles and an overarching view of interactions between three groups in particular, that being specialists producing research, interpreters delivering programs, and visitors taking part in the interpretive experience. Once again, these were not necessarily blueprints, but rather Tilden's own conceptualization of the relationships between interpreters, experts, and audiences. In his book, Interpreting Our Heritage, Tilden outlines six main principles which have gone on to become the foundation of nearly all interpretive literature that exists today. His principles are as follows, the first of which is any interpretation that does not somehow relate what is being displayed or described to something within the personality or experience of the visitor will be sterile. Now, at this point, it's important to take into account that adults in many cultural institutions often take for granted the special knowledge possessed by the interpreter. Upon going into the cultural institution, they're likely to consider themselves on par in terms of their knowledge with their interlocutor. For this reason exactly, Tilden explains that it's necessary to talk with a visitor rather than at a visitor. Visitors may not know exactly what brought them into a place, but it's clear that they're receptive seeing that they're there to begin with, and a sheer demonstration of factual knowledge can often be overwhelming. This is exactly the main challenge of the interpreter, which is to capitalize on the fact that a visitor is where they are. That brings us to our second point. Information as such is not interpretation. Interpretation is revelation based upon information, but they are entirely different things. However, all interpretation includes information. Here we can think of information as the raw material of interpretation. To most people, facts alone mean very little. However, when you group them with neighboring facts as well as notable historical dates, the interpreter is able to add perspective and color to what it is he's trying to convey. One of my favorite examples of this is given by Robert F. Griggs, an early 20th century botanist who wrote an article for National Geographic. Griggs led 1915 and 1916 expeditions to Mount Katmai in Alaska following the eruption that took place in 1912. Imagine, advises Griggs, a similar outburst centered in New York City. In such a catastrophe, all of greater New York would be buried under 10 to 15 feet of ash and subjected to the unknown horrors from hot gases. The column of steam would be plainly visible beyond Albany. Philadelphia would be covered by a foot of gray ash and would grope in total darkness for 60 hours. Washington and Baltimore would receive a quarter of an inch, and the sounds of the explosion would be heard as far as Atlanta and St. Louis. The fumes would be noticed as far as Denver, San Antonio, and Jamaica. Now this is an excellent example of interpretation, as the description given by Griggs is effectively able to add perspective to what it is he's trying to say. 
Most people know Mount St. Helens to be the largest and most destructive volcanic eruption to take place in the United States, yet the eruption at Mount Katmai was actually larger. Without a doubt, Gray, when I think about this example, it makes one differentiate between interpretation and information. One could just provide the simple statistics on the ash, on the fallout from this volcanic eruption. However, it does not visualize to the casual viewer, the American citizen who is listening to this talker. Through providing this perspective, one really interprets in the way that Muir would have, in the way that Mills would have. Yes, well put, Jacob. And um, Griggs is able to do this very artfully, which brings us to our next point, that interpretation is an art which combines many arts, whether the materials presented are scientific, historical, or architectural. Any art is in some degree teachable. Now, first it is necessary to note with this point that there is not necessarily a direct correlation to art in a literal sense, meaning its visual form. In an artful way, education is knowledge treated imaginatively. Education for an interpreter involves appealing to emotions as well as appealing to the hunger for a deeper understanding that exists within the audience. The interpreter must use art to reach his audience, and at his best, Hilton describes the interpreter as somewhat of a poet. Interpreters use art by creating stories out of their materials and giving form and life to the materials that they have at hand. Their main reliance is on the art of rhetoric, otherwise known as the art of writing or speaking. Interpreters rely on skill in the presentation of ideas that are adapted to a situation at hand. Which is a great segue into our fourth point given by Tilden, which is that the chief aim of interpretation is not instruction, but provocation. Here, it's important to point out that in any cultural institution, the visitors are incredibly diverse. And for that reason, it is necessary to employ universally provocative concepts. The chief aim of an interpreter is to stimulate readers or hearers towards a desire to widen their own horizons. Ideally, visitors are presented with broad ideas and then given the opportunity to supplement with details according to their personal impressions. Now, an interpreter might assist with this process, but the visitor must first be stimulated to want to discover new things and have a desire to look at the things that are in front of them. It's far more important for any visitor to carry away enjoyment from an experience rather than just an accumulation of facts, which is a great segue into our fifth point, which is that interpretation should aim to present a whole rather than a part and must address itself to the whole man rather than any phase. It doesn't matter how interesting, or uninteresting for that matter, any one part is. Stereotype performances are often boring and listless and only display facts. Now, this cliche is highly unlikely when the interpreter has presented a whole idea. It is far preferable for a visitor to leave with a whole image in their head as opposed to a random melange of confusing information. In the same way, we can't look at visitors as just seekers of information. This is only addressing a part of them. 
A whole person seeks new experiences, relaxation in many cases, adventure, satisfaction of their curiosity, new information, as well as affirmation of things that they already know. A great quote by Freeman Tilden is that a visitor may be there for the explicit hope that you'll reveal to him why he's there. He likely has no intrinsic desire to be in any particular cultural institution, and for that reason, it is the challenge of the interpreter to reveal that to him. Our last point is that interpretation addressed to children should not be a dilution of the presentations to adults, but should follow a fundamentally different approach. To be at its best, it will require a separate program. Now, this is for a variety of reasons, the first of which is the eagerness for information that children show. Going back to our first point, adult visitors often take for granted the special knowledge that is held by interpreters and show aversion to new information. Children show an eagerness for information that is unique to them and doesn't exist as readily at any other point in their life. With that being said, language choice when interpreting for children is of high importance. While they might be eager for information, interest is often lost in concepts that are difficult to understand or not well explained. In addition, children enjoy very particular things, particularly an indulgence in senses outside of seeing or hearing meaning they very much enjoy indulging in touch, taste, and smell. It's important to show companionship while interpreting for children while concealing direct instruction, because as many of us know, children resent classroom instruction but love firsthand experience. Children have an innate ability to associate themselves with their environment, and this is complemented and goes hand-in-hand with doing, touching, and personal examination. Now, all of these principles by Tilden have been instrumental in interpretive practices throughout history, but what we must keep in mind is that we have to continue to rework what they mean in relation to our audiences and our own cultural institutions. Without a doubt, and for that reason, the interpretive field has developed significantly since Tilden established these principles in the 1950s. Although they hold a lot of value still, and it is the core reading that interpreters are given for the beginning in their fields and learning the profession, a lot has changed in the field since then in terms of who's been establishing the interpretive principles and who's involved. In 1988, the National Association for Interpretation was founded. This is a non-for-profit 501c3 professional association, according to their website. The places associated with this association are parks, zoos, museums, nature centers, aquaria, botanical gardens, and historical sites with natural and cultural heritage resources. This organization aims to provide conferences, certification and training, as well as career opportunities, just to name a few of the resources for people in the interpretive profession. Beyond this, in 1994, the National Park Service established basic principles of interpretive planning through a comprehensive interpretive planning model. This means that each park has its own specific needs. Each park needs an interpretive plan. They recognize that. 
but needs to be goal-driven based on a hierarchical system of goals that is ingrained in their institution. This plan includes a professional from the National Park Service, an interpreter who coordinates with staff at these national parks, understand what interpretive services are needed, what planning needs to be done, what types of programs should be offered, what types of resources does the park have to offer. This planning has deeply, deeply shaped the interpretive field, for this model has been translated into other institutions. No longer is it only for parks, but an interpretive planning model, a comprehensive interpretive plan, is integral to several museum institutions, historic sites, and other places that deal with these natural and cultural heritage resources. This has also been translated to an international scale. The International Council of Monuments and Sites created in 2008 a charter for the interpretation and presentation of cultural heritage sites. In this charter, they established several objectives for interpreters at these specific areas. Whether you're at a park, whether you're at a famous castle on the Rhine in Germany, all these objectives apply. These are seven in total. They are to facilitate understanding and appreciation of cultural heritage sites and foster public awareness and engagement in the need for their protection and conservation. To communicate the meaning of cultural heritage sites to a range of audiences through careful, documented recognition of significance, through accepted scientific and scholarly methods, as well as from living cultural traditions. To safeguard the tangible and intangible values of cultural heritage sites in their natural and cultural settings and social contexts. To respect the authority of cultural heritage sites by communicating the significance of their historic fabric and cultural values and protecting them from the adverse impact of intrusive interpretive infrastructure, visitor pressure, inaccurate or inappropriate interpretation. To contribute to the sustainable conservation of cultural heritage sites through promoting public understanding of and participation in ongoing conservation efforts, ensuring long-term maintenance of the interpretive infrastructure and regular review of its interpretive contents. To encourage inclusiveness in the interpretation of cultural heritage sites by facilitating the involvement of stakeholders, and associated communities in the development and implementation of interpretive programs. This one especially holds a lot of weight in contemporary society. As regions diversify and the world is more globally connected, it is important to include different types of people. This means maybe not only providing an interpretive plan in the English language, but also Spanish or Mandarin. Finally, the last objective is to develop technical and professional guidelines for heritage interpretation and presentation. These include technologies, research, and training. Such guidelines must be appropriate and sustainable in their social contexts. All of these objectives, alongside the National Park Service's comprehensive interpretive planning, alongside the establishment of the National Association for Interpretation, 
demonstrates greatly how much the interpretive field has changed and how much it needed to change. Tilden could have not foreseen the things that confront our society today. And for that reason, some new principles need to be outlined. Sam H. Ham, a professor at the University of Idaho, established some new outlines for interpretation. Yes, thank you, Jacob. And those guidelines that were set forth by Professor Ham is known as the TOR model, which is an acronym standing for Thematic, Organized, Relevant, and Enjoyable Interpretation. The first of these is, of course, thematic, which means that successful interpretation involves telling a story with a theme. While there's often confusion between the two words, a topic is merely subject matter, whereas a theme is a main point or an idea. Without a theme, interpretation does not necessarily have a focus or a direction, and with a theme, the presentation is able to, quote-unquote, go somewhere. Themes make it easy to organize facts in supportive details because they are able to relate back to the theme throughout the course of the presentation. Without a theme, an audience can often get lost in, for lack of a better term, a sea of irrelevance, and the theme is there to provide the adhesive. In the same way, interpretation needs to be organized. Organized interpretation is presented in a way that is very easy to follow. It's important to note that successful interpretation should not require much effort from the audience. And this is because captive and non-captive audiences are different psychologically. By non-captive audiences, I'm referring to audiences that are not necessarily required to be in the place that they're in, which most cases is what interpreters are dealing with. Non-captive audiences can easily switch their attention off if too much effort is required of them and usually decide very early on whether the information at hand is worth paying attention to. A major factor in their decision is how well a message is organized. It's important for the interpreter to keep the number of ideas that they're presenting to a manageable number. Otherwise, it's very easy for the visitor to turn their attention off. Professor Ham describes a manageable number of ideas as four or fewer as in the same way that information needs to be easy to understand, there needs to be a reasonable amount of it. Visitors presented with too much information are often overwhelmed, and for that reason, the information can easily be overlooked. Now, that brings us to the third point, as described by Professor Ham, which is relevance. Relevance in an interpretive context has two different qualities. It's meaningful and it's personal. And in order to make it relevant, it's first of high importance to avoid technical terms unless they're of utmost importance. For our audience's sake, we need to bridge unfamiliar things to interests of the audience. And we can do this through direct examples, through analogies, contrasts, similes, and metaphors. A great way to do this is by referencing the audience at hand and really making them think about the information in regards to their own lives. While it's true that non-captive audiences can switch their attention off if too much is required of them, the opposite is also true. They can switch their attention on if the information becomes personal to them. The National Park Service created the idea of universal concepts in interpretation 
which goes hand in hand with this idea of relevance. An interpreter who touches on universal concepts such as love, hate, or even death is able to engage his audience very successfully, seeing that any audience is obviously very familiar with all of these concepts, even if it's not necessarily personal to them. When artfully presented, information as such is visceral and is able to touch an audience in a profound way. In that same sense, all successful communication is enjoyable. Now, to be engaging or entertaining or enjoyable for that matter, the interpretation must first be thematic, organized, and relevant. Now, it's important to note that in order to be enjoyable, it doesn't necessarily need to be funny or lighthearted. It simply needs to match the audience's idea of a good time. Interpretation should invite engagement or interaction with the audience, which can be done through a variety of ways, whether it's first-hand interaction in activities or simply lively communication. Better attention is always paid to humor, music, as well as discourse with the audience that allows them to share their own perceptions and points of view. Many dozens of studies on how humans process communication show that infusing interpretive product with all four of these concepts will bolster its chances of success by a very large margin. Thank you for the outline of those principles. I think a really important idea that Sam Ham brought up earlier in his book that can be a big takeaway from everything we've talked about today is that interpretation's highest purpose is to get people to connect with something personally. This can be through an emotional or effective response, but overall, it causes them to care. This is why it's important to have these organizations, this type of comprehensive planning, the rethinking of Tilden's principles through this Tor model. But in the end, interpreters have always got people to care. They've always got people to connect personally with these issues, with these sites, with these ideas. It makes them personal. It makes them realize that it matters. In the intro today, I mentioned, why are these things important? What do these things mean? Why should people care? What transforms these artifacts, artworks, documents, and places into something meaningful? What does that answer lie in? What do you think, Gray? It lies in interpretation, Jacob. Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast. For bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy and visit us in two weeks when we will talk about interpreting American environmentalism and ecology.